Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe that one reason why the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. When Jesus walked the earth, he was living, of course, in a pre-Christian culture. Christianity had little influence or effect on the culture as a whole at, the, at that point because it was struggling to exist as a marginalized part of society. Today, we're living in a post-Christian culture where Christianity has little influence or effect on the culture as a whole anymore because it is increasingly becoming a marginalized part of society. In other words, never in our lifetime, in America at least, has our society been so much like the one that Jesus lived in in terms of the lack of Christian influence on popular culture as a whole. And so in terms of making disciples, the church since has never been as effective as it was when it was marginalized in the first century, which is a fact that has potentially profound implications for the marginalized church in the 21st century because first of all, the same opportunities those early followers of Christ had to make disciples back then, we have today. And secondly, the same spirit that lived inside of those first century Christians that gave them the power and courage to make disciples so effectively in a culture that was so hostile toward the gospel back then, it's the same spirit that lives inside of us today. In other words, we have the same opportunities around us and the same power within us as followers of Christ to do everything in our society today that the followers of Christ did in the Bible back then. So why don't we? Why don't we live today like they did then, spiritually speaking? Why don't we do the things they did? Why don't we act the way they acted? Why don't we give up what they gave up? Why don't we embrace what they embraced? But was it about the followers of Christ in those early centuries of the church that had such a powerful multiplying effect that spread the Christian faith like a consuming wildfire across the cultural landscape, even when marginalized and at times under heavy persecution? What was so different about the disciples of Christ then from the disciples of Christ today? Because again, the Holy Spirit that we have today is the exact same Holy Spirit they had then. The answer is, what was so different about the disciples back then is that they were different. They didn't look like the rest of society. They chose to live a different kind of life, a transformed life from the one they lived before Jesus. Because when God makes you new, there's always a transformation that takes place, right? A change that is radical and radically obvious to everyone around you because as I say often, becoming a Christian is not just about believing something new, it's about becoming something new, right? The Apostle Paul was not the same person after he met Jesus as he was the day before he met Jesus. In fact, the change was so transformational that everyone who knew him or knew of him could plainly see the difference because everything about him, in him, changed, which meant everything coming out of him changed. And it was so powerful and so transformational that every single person who knew him was amazed by it. Some of them couldn't believe it. Now, the question is, can the same be said of you, of me? It's the transformational work of the Spirit. Is that work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God so clearly obvious in your life that everyone who knows you sees it and is affected by it, or 
is there little evidence of real change in your life? And in case you're wondering specifically what that change looks like, the Apostle Paul describes it in Galatians 5, through 25. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That one makes me sweat. <laughs> Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Does that describe you? If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Ugh, this is hard. Provoking one another, envying one another. Listen, being born again means being born of His Spirit, according to Jesus in John 3, 6 through 8. So when God makes you new, He fills you with His own Spirit, which means the fruit of His Spirit becomes evident in yours. Because whatever is in you is what comes out of you. And so if you are in fact full of his spirit, then the fruit of that same spirit is what will come out of you. Listen, for everyone who knows you to see and experience and be affected by it. And of course, we don't have time to work through every fruit of the spirit described here, but we'll just for a moment consider the first one, love, which also happens to be the greatest of them all, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and according to Jesus in Matthew 22, according to the Apostle John in 1 John 4, according to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, according to James, the brother of Jesus in James 2, to love God and to love one another is God's greatest commandment and our highest ideal. It fulfills the law and it covers a multitude of sins and it happens to be proof that we are in fact made new. As a matter of fact, without love, the Apostle John says, transformation is impossible. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, 1 John 4.20. This is where it gets real, real fast. Do you love people who hate you? Do you love people who disagree with you? Do you love people who stand for everything you don't? Do you love them? Do you love people who don't believe what you believe or think how you think or act like you want them to? Has God's love transformed you to the point that every single person who knows you sees it plainly, powerfully coming out of you as you love people even when they don't love you back? Is God's transforming love transforming you? I can tell you this, if it is, then everyone around you will know it because they'll see it coming out of you because whatever is in you is what comes out of you. So just answer this, if a total stranger looked at your social media posts for the past year, would they think, man, there's a guy who loves God and loves other people, or would they think, that guy's angry? Would they think there's a woman full of love for others or there's a woman full of hurt toward others? Because you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother. If a total stranger were to look at your finances for a year, how you spend and where you invest your money, would they think there's someone who really loves God and other people? Or would they think there's someone who really loves himself or herself more than anyone else? Because you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother. What, what if a total stranger were to listen into your conversations about what's going on in our world today and all the lost people in it? Would it be obvious to that person who doesn't know you that you have been transformed by the love of God because of your obvious love for him and for others? Or 
Would they be saddened to hear yet another dissenting, hateful voice among the masses of people who have drawn their battle lines in the sand? Look, it matters that we answer these questions honestly because you cannot say you love God if you hate your brother. By the way, loving God and loving others has nothing to do with feelings. Feelings can be wonderful, and at times they can be affirming, but you understand love isn't a feeling, right? Love is a choice. You have to choose to love people every single day, whether you feel like it or not. Okay, this is just one example of what it looks like to be a Christian, to be different than the rest of the world, because the world isn't like this, right? To be like Jesus, and yet we see it over and over and over again in the lives of men and women in the Bible who followed him. In fact, there isn't one single person highlighted in all of biblical scripture who believed in Jesus, was forgiven of their sins, thereby receiving his spirit, who also wasn't radically changed in ways that were clearly observable by everyone who knew them. They weren't perfect, far from it. And neither are we after receiving him, at least not this side of heaven, but we are most certainly undeniably and observably different after meeting Jesus than we were before. We have to be. It's what sets followers of Jesus Christ apart from followers of everything else. It's not just our doctrine. It's not just our sacred scripture. It's not just our sincere faith. What makes followers of Christ different than followers of everything else is the fact that we alone have the spirit of the living God living inside of us which brings about changes that are clearly evident in the lives of those who have, in fact, received that spirit. And listen, it, it has to. It has to. There's no reality where you actually receive the Holy Spirit and yet remain the same as you were before. This is the point the Apostle Paul is trying to get across in this next part of his letter to the Christians in Rome, that if your life has truly been transformed by God's grace through your faith, then it, it will show up in what you do and what is in you and what is coming out of you. Listen to the point that if someone who doesn't know, listen, you should be so transformed that to the point if someone who doesn't know you or doesn't know Jesus were to ask you, what does a Christian look like? You should be able without hesitation to respond, just watch me and you'll know. Which sounds arrogant, but Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, which he could say confidently, not because he was perfect, but because he was different. He was changed, noticeably changed from the day before he met Jesus to the day after. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see how Paul describes what a Christian should look like to the rest of the world. Romans chapter 12, we'll begin with the first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 11, verse 36, Paul has presented a massive argument about the salvation that God gives to his people by his grace, not by our works. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And so now, in light of what God has done, Paul turns his attention to the only appropriate response we can make to this unmerited gift of salvation, namely living our entire lives in service to him, completely committed to him. So Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And the word appeal, para, uh, parakaleo, in the ancient Greek, means to invite. 
or to call or to summons a person to come alongside you. So Paul's saying, hey everyone, I'm inviting you to come with me to live a different kind of life, to go on the greatest and certainly the most challenging journey you could ever live out. And what's compelling about the, wall, the way that Paul expresses it, the way he puts it, is that it's not a command. It's an appeal. It's actually an invitation because Paul understands that this decision to go on the, the journey of following Christ with him it's up to the Romans alone. It's up to you alone. In other words, live, living a life totally submitted to God must be completely willing on their part. It's not something Paul can command them to do because of what comes next. The appeal is that the readers present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which, by the way, is a suggestion whose force would, would have been far more obvious to Paul's first readers than probably to most of us today because first century people were very familiar with the offering of sacrifices, even the uh, non-Jews, right, the Gentiles, whereas we're not. They were used to standing by an altar and watching as an animal was identified as their own and as it was slain in the ritual manner and its blood manipulated and the whole or part of the animal was burned on an altar while the smoke and flames ascended to the deity they worshiped to suggest that they themselves should be sacrifices was a truly striking piece of imagery. It would have grabbed them in a way that it probably doesn't for most of us. And so when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he has their attention. And yet the sacrifice that Paul's describing here is not calling for the destruction of the body, but the full energy of life, full on, all or nothing, Commitment, as Paul says, this sacrifice is holy, which means consecrated or dedicated. It's given over entirely to God. The believer now belongs to Christ alone, which is why it's acceptable to God. Paul says, which is, this is your spiritual worship. This is how you worship God. It's not just singing some heartfelt songs on Sunday morning. No, true worship is consecrating your entire life to Jesus Christ. There's a collection of ancient Jewish apocryphal writings known as the Testaments of the Patriarchs. Fascinating. They're not, it's not biblical scripture, but it's historical in nature nonetheless. And in one of those writings, the Testament of Levi, chapter 3, verse 6, the angels are described as offering to the Lord a fragrant odor, a spiritual and bloodless sacrifice, serving God 24-7. Okay, our worship is living our lives in total devotion, complete commitment and consecration in service to God, which you cannot do when your life is conformed to this world. I've tried, it doesn't work, right? Paul says you must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, when he says be transformed, it's the same Greek verb referenced as transfigured in the transfiguration narratives in Matthew 17, one and two and Mark nine, two. In fact, the only other place where it occurs in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 318, which refers to believers being changed into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another by the operation of the Lord who is the Spirit. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here. It's a total transformation by the renewing of your mind. It's not, it's not a mindless emotionalism, but a deeply intelligent and thoughtful approach to life that is to be characteristic of the Christian who has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul is saying, look, if you've received that gift of salvation through the unmerited grace of God, well then act like it. Live your life like it. Paul says, be holy. 
It's not a biblical topic that gets a lot of press these days because deep down every one of us knows that we all fall woefully short of perfect holiness, which makes talking about it extremely uncomfortable for most of us, if we're being honest. Yeah, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to, uh, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Mark 9, 42. It's a metaphor for those who disciple others, particularly leaders in the church who teach. This verse keeps me up at night. Jesus says, look, if you teach others anything less than the whole counsel of God, the gospel in its entirety, the parts you like and the parts you don't like, if you add or take away from any part of this message causing others to stumble, it's not only sin, but sin of the gravest order. In fact, teaching any version of my gospel other than, than the one I'm teaching you is such a serious offense, you'd be better off having a great millstone hung around your neck and be tossed into the sea, which in ancient Jewish literature was considered this place of terror and chaos. It's an obvious reference to hell. And yet people are so careless and cavalier today to teach their own version of the gospel, one that suits their lifestyle, one that promises everything for us while requiring nothing from us. It's an easy gospel and it feels really good and one they would uh, deal with even in the early church. A false gospel, actually, according to Jesus, that leads straight to hell, which he goes on to describe in Mark 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. I'm pretty sure Jesus' disciples couldn't have been any more uncomfortable than when they were listening to Jesus talk about sin and hell and the need for holiness in their lives. You bet they were squirming in their seats. Obviously, Jesus is using metaphor here to describe the problem of sin, which is a matter of the heart, because sin comes from within. So no matter what it is, listen, if the deepest desires of your heart lead you to sin, then you must forsake those desires. Die to yourself. Suffer the loss of that passion and cling to the cross. What is the cross? It's a place of suffering. I've told you this before. I'm convinced that when the biblical writers talk about suffering for Christ, I know we tend to think about persecution and certainly that was a reality for them, but I also believe when they talked about suffering for the sake of Christ, they were often recalling all of the things they had to cut out of their own lives and give up while dying to themselves so they could better devote themselves to Christ and his message without the former distractions of the world ruling their lives. Just look at what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Philippi. Right When he talks about dying, he says, for me to die, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Let's do it, boys. String me up. He wasn't afraid to die for Jesus, but this is what he says to his letter to the Philippians. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is his resume. But whatever gain I had, 
All that I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 4 through 8. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. What things? What things is Paul saying he's suffered the loss of? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had pedigree, status, influence, power, respect, experience, and this is a big one. The moral high ground, according to the world, before he met Jesus. You understand what Paul's saying here? He's saying, uh, he's not talking about persecution. Certainly he was persecuted. He talks about that in other places, but here, He's not talking about suffering because of persecution. Here he's describing the process that Jesus described to his disciples. We just read, this is Paul deliberately and painfully cutting everything out of his life that he once held dear in order that he might gain Christ. And make no mistake about it, it was a tremendous cause of suffering in Paul's life. It's the very reason we don't like talking about holiness because it inevitably necessitates a degree of suffering on our part when we deal with our own sin, sometimes a great degree of suffering, as I can attest to firsthand. And of course, no one likes to suffer. And so instead, we simply avoid the issue of sin and holiness until it becomes a non-issue. For many professing believers today, even though Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible, far more, in fact, he talked about hell than he ever did about heaven because he didn't want people to go there. And yet somewhere along the way, in much of the modern church at least, we've attached ourselves to the idea that we can gain Christ without giving up anything else. Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all those things that I might gain Christ. Right? Despite the fact that Jesus and the biblical writers were emphatic about everything we'd have to suffer the loss of just to follow Jesus. Just read the last third of Luke 14. And by the way, there's nothing inherently inside of you that makes you holy. You know that, right? There's no goodness inherently inside of you that makes you holy. Only Christ can make you holy, right? There's plenty inside of you that can keep you from being made holy. But there's nothing in you that makes you holy other than Christ. So Jesus says, whatever it is, it's better to suffer the loss of something near and dear to your heart than to take it with you into hell. It's what clinging to the cross looks like. It's suffering the loss of everything that keeps the spirit of Christ from changing you from the inside out. And listen, the world and many elements of the modern church that are worldly will tell you that you don't have to give up anything in order to gain Christ. That's a lie. That's a lie. You can do and say and believe virtually anything you want to and it doesn't matter as long as you believe in Jesus. And you can still be a Christian and live any way you want to. It's a form of relativism. Andrew Womack said, one of the things I've learned is that many Christians never let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. Relativism. What is right for me is right for me. What is right for you is right for you. We're good. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative and up for interpretation, even the Bible. Of course, if you challenge that assertion at all, you're immediately labeled as an intolerant religious bigot because the world believes it has the moral high ground over the church today. Do you hear me? The world believes it has the moral high ground over the church today. 
How many times have we heard people in the media now saying that those of us who cling to a biblically orthodox Christianity are going to end up on the wrong side of history? If you don't celebrate and promote homosexuality, if you don't champion abortion, if you don't affirm gender neutrality, in short, if you don't approve any and all behavior that people choose to participate in, regardless of what the Bible actually teaches about that behavior and the human heart that it comes from, then you're going to end up on the wrong side of history. Listen, I'd rather suffer the loss of being on the right side of history than to go to hell because I was too afraid to confront my own sin. Now, what we need is to be honest with ourselves first and then with each other about what Jesus actually taught, that there are indeed changes that must occur in the life of every single human being who would ever choose to follow Christ. His grace in our lives, you understand, that's what saves us. It's not our good deeds, it's not our holiness, it's not our, our good works, that's not what saves us. His grace saves us alone through our faith. But His grace in our lives demands a response, and that response is to be holy. Let's keep reading, verses three through eight. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul now goes on to describe the incredible diversity within the church more than any other organization on earth. Listen, the church, if we're doing it right, is incredibly diverse and yet unified at the same time, or at least uh, it's supposed to be. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. It's a beautiful picture of heaven on earth. All different people from all walks of life coming together in perfect unity to build one another up in Christ. And Paul says the way we do that is by using our gifts, which, by the way, are as diverse as we are. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And notice... When it comes to how we, how we should use all of these multifaceted, widely diverse gifts, notice what's not on the list. Tearing each other down. Nowhere does Paul say we should use our gifts to beat each other up, to win arguments, to make ourselves look better than others. No, it's all about serving one another and building each other up by putting each other first. And he says this in the context of how diverse the church is because there's a tendency for human beings to look down on people who are different than us, right? And although that may be commonplace for the world, Paul says it can't be that way in the church. Be humble. Jesus said if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9.35, this is one of the foundational principles in the kingdom of God. If you want to be first... You must choose to be last. And the way you choose to be last 
is by serving others. The ancient Greek word for the word servant, uh, diakoneo, it was the common word for waiting tables. Humble servanthood. Listen, the whole idea of subservience to others was so central to the thought and teachings and actions of Jesus, it's recorded in nearly every stratum of the early church. Mark 10, 43 and 44, Matthew 20, 26 and 27, 23 and 11, Luke uh, 22, 26, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, in extra biblical writings as well, again, not books of the Bible, but historical works like the epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, chapter 5, verse 2. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. Okay, the second century work, the shepherd of Hermas, which was actually considered biblical canon by uh, Arrhenus, the disciple of Polycarp. Uh, some of the other early church fathers as well. Mandate, chapter 2, verse 1, similitude, uh, similitude, chapter 9, verse 29, the gospel of Thomas, chapter 22, the acts of Peter, chapter 38. It just, it just goes on and on and on. This whole concept of the Christian life being marked by servanthood was a pervasive and inescapable reality of the early church. Listen, not because Jesus suggested it, because he commanded it. You understand, for the Christian, exhausting your life in service to others is not optional. Jesus taught it to his disciples. He modeled it for others, and he demands it from us. There's no version of truly following Jesus where you don't utterly spend your life serving others. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Okay? You want to discover your calling in life? Start serving others. That's how you figure it out. You want to make the most of what God has given you? Start serving others. You want to have influence and recognition among your peers? Start serving others. You want to be honored and respected by other people? Then serve those very people and they will not only honor and respect you, but they will see Jesus in you. It's the opposite of what the world has been pushing from the beginning of time. The world says serve yourself, demand respect, act like you own the place, tell everyone how great you are and make sure they see your giftings and talents so you'll be properly recognized for who you are and what you're capable of. Meanwhile, Jesus says, you think you're great? I'm telling you, the lowliest servant who's quiet, obedient, and submissively serves others is greater than all of you. Okay? Jesus didn't call you to be successful, by the way. You know that, right? Jesus didn't call you to be successful. He called you to be obedient. He called you to serve, which means that should be one of the hallmarks of the Christian life, and it's not optional. We have no right to call ourselves followers of Christ if we're not living lives of servanthood, because if you're not serving, then you're clearly not following Christ. And I'll just tell you, every time I talk about our Next Steps classes where we invite you to become a part of one of our ministries, I often preface my remarks with the idea that we'll never pressure you to get involved. Just come and enjoy the day and learn about the church. We'll give you a t-shirt and a Subway sandwich. And honestly, I really need to stop saying that. Because I'm not being honest as your pastor. If I tell you anything less than the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the morning star, the bread of life, the living water, the one through whom all things were made, that same Jesus set the bar for us when he got down on his own knees and washed the filthy feet of his disciples and then right after that allowed himself to be mocked, beaten, tortured, murdered for them, for you, for me. You know what? He demands nothing less from every one of us. If anyone would be first, 
He must be last of all and servant of all. It's not optional. Truth is, it's nothing short of ludicrous for any church full of Christians to be understaffed in any area of ministry. In fact, there should be waiting lists for people wanting to serve, not because the church needs it, but because Jesus commanded it. It's the difference between us and the world. It's not our music, it's not our buildings, it's not our programs, it's not our events, it's not our services. No, what separates us from the world is actually the change in our lives that other people see in us that are contrary to everything this world stands for. It's the humility to serve others even when everything in you wants to be served. Nothing is more contrary to the ways of this world and our culture than this one statement by Jesus, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Yet the modern American church has bred into its culture this idea that we come to church to be served. So we do everything we can to have, listen, we, have, we do everything we can to have the most friendly greeters, the most inviting space, the best tasting coffee, the most comfortable chairs, the most enjoyable music, the most engaging preachers and gifts and programs and events and on and on and on it goes. And yet if one thing is off, people leave and go look for another church that will serve them better. What is wrong with us? We don't come here to be served, but to serve, to give, to lay our lives down for each other in humble servanthood. And look, it's not that any of those nice things, by the way, are, are wrong to have in and of themselves are wonderful. As long as those nice things aren't the reasons we're coming because our calling isn't to be served, it's to serve. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That is the humility the world must see in us. John Newton said, I'm persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. Let's finish our story for today. Verse nine to the end of the chapter. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul wraps up this part of the letter with a list of qualities that describes the life of the follower of Christ who pleases the Lord. And not surprisingly, love is at the head of the list because everything that Paul says here is embraced within the call to love. It's the highest calling of the Christian, to be love. To be the image bearers of Christ who happens to be love defined, right? When it comes to God, the question has never been whether or not he loves you. 
Of course he loves you. Jesus made no bones about it when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. And as Paul says in his letter, God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. You see, when it came down to what God would do with us in response to our behavior, our sin, our rejection of him, God chose to love first while we were still sinning. He chose to love first, not because of our behavior, but because of his nature, which is love defined. The apostle John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, uh, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. So whether or not God loves you has never really been the question. The question is, do you love God? Or do you just love the things that you associate with God? The blessings, the promises, the culture of the church, the, the way of life that you grew up in. I, I love all of that. I do. But listen, there's a difference between loving the things that we associate with God and actually loving God himself, which has come to light under the pressure these past couple of years have brought to bear upon our country between pandemics and politics and social unrest and wars, and of course the resulting behavior of those who profess to love God in response to all of that. Because if we truly love him, that love for God will show up undeniably in how we love others. And yet I think if we're being honest through everything that has unfolded these past couple of years at times, much of the professing church has been judgmental toward the world. We, we've made certain sins nearly unpardonable while almost winking at others. And at times we've been more focused on spreading politics than we have with spreading the gospel because sometimes I think we're more concerned about winning arguments than we are with winning hearts. When in truth our immediate response to the world should always be to love first because that's what Jesus did for you and me. But that's not what we always find in the church except now the world is, listen, the difference is now the world is pushing back against the church in ways we haven't seen before in our lifetime, not because they're tired of Jesus, but because they're tired of the way the people who are supposed to love Jesus are behaving toward them to the point that it calls into question for the rest of the world what it is we're more in love with, Jesus or our own religious culture. And so we have to be very careful, as Paul points out repeatedly in this last section of the chapter, that in the pursuit of all that we believe to be good and right, all of the promises and blessings, that we don't forget the one who gives all of those promises and blessings and that we've been called, what we've been called to do with them, to love one another to outdo one another in showing honor, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, show hospitality, bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and on and on. And he goes. Because listen, when it's all said and done, the story we're living in is not about whether America is liberal or conservative. It's not about whether you wear a mask or not. It's not even about our civil liberties. And I'm not saying those things don't matter. All that matters. But loving God first and loving other people as much as we love ourselves, that had better be more important to us than all of these other issues combined if those who are lost are to have any hope of knowing that same love. Because his love for others 
comes through us, through you and me, loving them with the love of Christ, even if we disagree on everything else. By the way, uh, just so you know, that's how this country is going to change. That, that's how our culture is going to change. That's how the world's view of God and his people is going to change when the world sees Christians setting aside everything else and loving first. Loving God and loving them more than we love anything and everything else, especially ourselves. Okay, because you can live a very religiously faithful life. You can surround yourself with the best Christians you know. You can learn his word and listen to the greatest sermons ever preached. But if you don't love God first and others as much as you love yourself, then you'll always care more about those other things than you do about the people who don't know him. The people he's called you to who are waiting to experience his love through you. And yeah, that's a different way to live. But that's what happens when God's transforming love transforms you. You begin to act different, to talk different, to behave different than the rest of the world. You begin to be holy to be humble, to be loved. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. Let's pray.